This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're talking about men's below-the-belt issue, a new once-per-week medication to treat diabetes type 2. And also, are you working from home? Are you getting used to it? Are you desperate to get back to the office? It might surprise you to know how most Canadians feel. Also, let's get real on the sex thing. How much sex should you be having? And why not give the gift of playing out your fantasies for a little holiday treat? The Sunday Night Health Show starts now. This is a very important subject, and I see a number of patients. And recently I saw a patient in my clinical practice who I had to see in person. I'm doing a lot of virtual visits these days to teach him how to do intermittent self-catheterization, which is why I invited... Dr. Dean Elterman. You can call him a below-the-belt doctor. He's a urologist, an academic urologist at the University Health Network, University of Toronto. He specializes in BPH, benign prosthetic hyperplasia, neuromodulation, OAB, and functional urology. Good evening, Dr. Elterman. Hi, Maureen. Nice to be with you again. Yeah, thanks for joining me from Toronto. I know it's late there. Oh, that's fine. I'm always ready to join you on the show. Excellent. Thank you. Late in a lockdown. Anyway, what else are you doing anyway, right? <laughs> Our sleep is exactly. off. <laughs> yeah, it's a 24-7 deal. Um, you know, I had a patient in my office who was, well, actually, he wasn't even sure what he was diagnosed with, but he had a lot of symptoms, a lot of urinary symptoms. He was basically... Uh, started with a weak stream, and then he was unable to urinate altogether. And he went to an urgent care center. And about five weeks later, he's had a number of tests, urodynamic tests, a cystoscopy, and he has an indwelling catheter. He's 55 years old. Uh, he, they have told him that eventually he is going to have a TERP, a transurethral resection of the prostate, and they just put him on medication. The doctor just put him on medication about five to six weeks um, since his troubles began. So I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that particular case. He'd like to have the indwelling catheter come out, and he would like to be taught intermittent self-catheterization. Right. So... This is a classic presentation of uh, prostate enlargement, benign prostate enlargement, or BPH. And it's a, it can be a very slow and insidious chronic condition where, you know, as men get older, their prostate starts to enlarge, and slowly it'll start to obstruct the stream of urine as it empties the bladder. And eventually, many men will actually reach a tipping point where they're going to have the symptoms of a slow stream, incomplete emptying, straining, having to wait a long time for the stream to start and for many men, they may ignore those symptoms and not seek medical attention, or it might just creep up on them before they know it. But eventually, they could actually tip the scales to the other side where they can't even pee at all. And that's going into urinary retention. The good news, though, is that with either medication in many situations or some sort of prostate procedure or surgery, we can actually get the majority of men out of retention before they've done permanent damage to their bladders. Right. So, so this gentleman is quite depressed, and he feels like it's it's been it's now about seven weeks. Um, and at about six weeks, he was put on medication. Uh, he was given a number of tests, and you know you have to wait for tests these days. Um, and uh, he kind of fe- felt a little bit like, why didn't they put me on the medication earlier? What would be the initial treatment for somebody with BPH who is having difficulty voiding or unable yeah, so to unable the, to void altogether, yeah. basically? Yeah. 
Well, the mainstay of, of BPH treatment uh, has been medical therapy. I mean, there's many people who have symptoms and you can just go on to watchful waiting and see how your symptoms go slowly over time. But generally over the last several decades, we've, be, we've put men on medications and essentially there's two classes of drugs. One class called alpha blockers are essentially prostate relaxers. And there's another class of drugs called 5-alpha reductase inhibitors that are prostate shrinkers. So you've got relaxers and shrinkers, and you can actually take them together. The relaxers actually take about hmm, a week to start to work once you start taking them, whereas the shrinkers can actually take six months or more. Mm -hmm. So if you're getting into trouble with urination, you want to get on those medications as soon as possible. Um, and in many cases with retention, once you go on the med after a week or two, you can try again to be able to pee on your own. Uh, and of course, if the medications don't work, then there are a number of procedures, both more conventional transurethral surgeries and some new minimally invasive options as well. And so is it best to go the conservative measure um, to start with? You know, uh, well, like medications, uh, such as medications, for example, are also good yeah. bladder health. Yeah, I mean, I think medications are the easy, most accessible option uh, to men. Uh, you don't need to see a specialist to get onto medication. This is something that family doctors, GPs can prescribe routinely. So you shouldn't hesitate to mention to your family doctor that you're starting to see some changes in urination, the slowing of your stream, having to wait a long time because they can put you on the medications uh, early on uh, and, again, prevent episodes where you can't pee at all or even prevent the need for having a medication or a surgery in the, in the, in the uh -huh. future. And you mentioned, well, I think I mentioned neurodynamic testing and um, sometimes, uh, or is it often that men will have a cystoscopy done and what is the purpose of having a cystoscopy done? So cystoscopies are, are sort of like, uh, almost like the stethoscope for a urologist. It's a way for us to actually look and see what's going on uh, in the lower urinary tract. So, uh, cystoscopy is done with a flexible digital or fiber optic scope. It's much smaller than even a, a size of a, a small pen. Uh, it's done under just local anesthesia. We can use a little bit of a numbing gel. And essentially, it's a way for us to look along uh, the urinary passageway uh, from the urethra all the way back up into the bladder. It can be done for both men and women. And it's useful because it can tell us what is the cause of the obstruction, how big does the prostate look, is there anything else going on, like tumors? Uh, and also, what is the condition of the bladder in terms of its appearance? Uh, and a cystoscopy will give us more details than what we could see with a CT scan or an ultrasound. Uh -huh. and, and can people who are men who have not had this treated, uh, they can do damage to their bladders? Yeah, so one of the, you know, there's two reasons for treating BPH. One is the quality of life and the symptoms. It's not fun to have to wake up multiple times at night. It's not fun to have to stand a long time and strain and, and sit on the toilet for, for many, many minutes. Uh, but of course, there are other important structures that we need to protect, so your bladder and your kidneys. So we want to make sure that your bladder doesn't deteriorate, and what that means is eventually it's going to weaken over time, and it may even stop squeezing entirely, and then you're going to be reliant on having to use a catheter your whole life. And of course, if urine backs up, it can actually put pressure on your kidneys and cause uh, renal dysfunction, kidney problems. So we really want to prevent both deterioration of bladder function, we want to prevent kidney damage, 
and also improve men's quality of life. My guest is Dr. Dean Elterman. He is an academic urologist, University Health Network at the University of Toronto, specializing in BPH, neuromodulation, OAB, and functional urology. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Elterman. Pleasure. I want to, most people believe that only women leak urine, uh, that it's associated with little old ladies. There's lots of marketing and pink packaging. I actually have an idea. I mean, let me just run it by you that I wanted to <laughs> buy some pads and just mark them with blank, you know, paper and then put a sign on it that says, you don't have to live in pads. There are many treatments for you. Um, and then call this number. Anyway, um, because and it's actually the, in some of the drugstores across Canada, it's the number one product, adult diapers. And it's not just women, it's men who are affected by this as well. And that's what you specialize in your, uh, with partly in your uh, clinical practice. So um, men can not only leak with stress urinary incontinence after surgical procedures, but they also can get overactive bladder. Tell me what overactive bladder is. So overactive bladder is a, a group of symptoms where essentially you have the sudden compelling desire to, to urinate and you can't delay or defer going. In other words, you need to go and you need to go right away. And overactive bladder actually afflicts both men and women equally uh, and it affects them decade for decade. So whether you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, equal numbers of men and women develop overactive bladders. Um, and the main symptoms of an overactive bladder are what we call the fun, synth- fun symptoms, frequency, urgency, and nocturia, which means up, waking up at night to pee. So essentially, you have to have urgency, so rushing to the bathroom, and it may also happen frequently, like eight or more times in a day, and also wake you up from sleep. So those are the main symptoms of OAB. Uh, and the challenge, of course, for men is that they can have both prostate symptoms, BPH, like a slow flow, uh, straining, non-emptying, and also OAB symptoms of frequency urgency. So it can be a little bit puzzling as to which symptoms do you treat first and, and how do you even approach these men? And, and which symptoms do you treat first, Dr. Elterman? My rule of thumb is really to go to the most bothersome symptoms first. So if men are really bothered by rushing to the bathroom and having small leaks of urine, I would actually treat their OAB first and see how they do. Now, of course, if they also have a slow urinary stream, we may also give them at the same time, say, one of those prostate relaxing medications. So men, can we can mix and match different classes of drugs according to which uh, symptoms are bothering our patients. Uh, So, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that there are many treatments for leakage of urine. And of course, with overactive bladder, men and women can leak with that as well. So it can be a dry OAB or a wet OAB. Is that correct? It can. In fact, about two thirds of OAB is dry, meaning you're not going to have any leaks. And specifically, you know, men who have prostates kind of act as a buffer. So they're less likely to leak compared to women who have OAB. Um, But there's definitely a relationship as well with the development of having an enlarged prostate and then subsequently getting an overactive bladder. And so we often see that when we treat the prostate, especially with surgery or procedures, not only does the flow improve, but also the OAB symptoms improve as well. That's fantastic. Um, You're also doing some research um, on stress urinary incontinence out of the University of Toronto. Tell me a little bit about that and that new device. Yeah, so stress urinary incontinence is leakage associated with coughing, laughing, sneezing. So stress, physical stress you would put on your bladder. Very common uh, in women day to day, uh, especially as they get a bit older. 
but it is also something that happens in men specifically after prostate cancer treatment. We know we just finished uh, November. November is prostate cancer awareness. And essentially, when we remove the whole prostate surgically to treat prostate cancer, one of the side effects, unfortunately, is leakage of urine or stress incontinence. And so some individuals in Canada have actually developed this new product called the Contino device, and it acts like a small urethral insert, uh, and it can block leaks from happening. So this is one of the new areas of research that we're focused on because we used to just have pads and diapers or external clamps or uh, surgical implants, and this is something that's completely different. Yeah, it's fantastic, and I love the fact that there are more and more advancements in treating leakage of urine because people can become isolated and depressed. It's a reason for a long-term care at home admission. And in these days with coronavirus, all of those things matter just that much more. Yeah, absolutely. We, we want to have uh, men and women living in the community, uh, not having to worry about having accidents, not worrying about going out in better days without coronavirus Uh, to visit friends and family and and worrying about having a leak when they're out there. Uh, And so all of these strategies, whether it's medication, whether it's pelvic floor physiotherapy, or whether it's uh, a new device like a a Contino urethral insert, all of these can help give uh, at least our patients a greater sense of security and improved quality of life. We just have about 20 seconds left. Um, How can people get uh, learn more about the research, Dr. Elterman? Uh, the research, they can look on uh, the uh, Life360 website as well as MyContino, M-Y-C-O-N-T-I-N-O. So the device is called the Contino uh, device, and it's a Canadian uh, product, and they can look online. There's a number of uh, ways of finding uh, the clinical trial information. There's and sites in Vancouver and in Toronto. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Really appreciate all of the information. There's about... Three million people in Canada living with diabetes, and 90% of them live with diabetes type 2. People with type 2 diabetes cannot properly use the insulin made by their bodies, or their bodies aren't able to produce enough insulin. Oftentimes, healthy eating and regular exercise, which are so difficult on the best of days, can help. But people may require medications or even insulin therapy for this Joining me on the line is Dr. Tom Elliott. He is medical director of BC Diabetes, and he's here to tell us about a game-changing medication for those living with type 2 diabetes. Good evening, Dr. Elliott. Good morning, Maureen. How are you? Good evening, I guess. I'm, I'm so, How's your blood I'm, sugar? <laughs> well, I have had a glass of uh, Chardonnay, and it was delicious. What's a guy supposed to do on a Sunday night? No kidding. <laughs> Exactly. You could have sent a bottle and we could have had cheered together. Yeah. Well, I could have had mine in here in the studio and you could have had yours at home. <laughs> Maureen, you know what? This this is the this is an incredible thing. This is a gift to people living in British Columbia who have type two diabetes and who have a waistline. This drug lowers sugar, but more importantly, it lowers weight and it does it reliably and predictably. Oh, that's amazing. So the yeah, the government has opened its coffers to what I estimate, you know, at least 100,000 British Columbians should be on this drug. And the drug is called? It's it's called semaglutide, and the brand name is Ozempic. It's a shot. It's mm-hmm. a painless shot. You take it once a week. 
you start with a small dose and you, every two weeks you increase the dose. And most people get onto one milligram a week and it, it lowers their weight by about five kilos. It lowers their sugar. It suppresses their appetite. And it's just amazing. I mean, I, I have, you know, I think I have at least 500 patients in my own practice on it. Most of those are paying out of pocket or have third party insurance. All of a sudden, the British Columbia government, Pharmacare, is covering it. it, it this is it's truly amazing. It, it is amazing because British Columbia historically has been the last to get on the uh, medication, you know, where they provide medications for people. Like other provinces are, have been covering this medication for a little while. Is that correct? That's right. We are always the last. And we're still waiting for Adrian Dix to cover CGM. Uh, 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 the only topic that's closer to my heart than Ozempic, Maureen. Is that, tell me a little bit about that. CGM, continuous glucose meters, it's, oh, there's a revolution yes. in diabetes. Absolutely. Revolution in diabetes. That's type 1. In type 2, they're also good, but, but the coverage of ozempic or semaglutide is, is huge news. I'm actually planning to send an email. I'm going to do a search on my database, identify any of, any of them who've got a waistline who aren't on it, and they're going to get an email saying, let's get you on this drug. Absolutely. It's fantastic. Is it only for people with type 2 diabetes that have a waistline? How about those of us with a waistline that don't have type 2 diabetes? Some people are going to wonder. Maureen, it works fantastically well. You know, like just about everybody I know who's got a waistline has tried it, and it's it's extremely effective. The government is not yet covering it for people who do not have diabetes, but it works very effectively in in non-diabetes. Is that right? That's very interesting because a lot of people struggle to lose weight, uh, and and especially to get kick-started. Uh, initially. And so once they lose a little bit, they get inspired. So maybe, but let's get back to the type two diabetic. So uh, people were paying out of their pocket for that. Yeah. It's on the full dose. It's $7 a day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if, if you're listening and you've got diabetes in a waistline, um, once you hit your, your 2% threshold, you'll be paying just $2.10 a day. And once you hit your 3% threshold, then it's covered completely by Pharmacare. So at $2 a day, it, it's a gift. It, it's, if, you know, if $2, if $2 is affordable, of course. Uh, oh, of course. It's 50, it goes from 200 a month now to $56 a month if you hit your 2% and then free if yes, you hit your 3%. That's right. Yeah, that's amazing. That is fantastic. Um, you know, how do people also need to um, have uh, other? Uh, methods as well? Should it, is it still important for them to eat a healthy, low glycemic index oh, yeah. diet and exercise? I, I, absolutely. So, you know, I still want people to eat less and exercise more. And, and in terms of what they eat less of, they should eat fewer carbs. So if it's, if it's white and it's not cauliflower, then they should be eating less or not eating it at all. And then exercising. And then the province does require that they go on two other diabetes medications, metformin, which most people with type 2 take. Glyburide, which is a dangerous drug <laughs> that mm. the government, that the that BC Pharmacare hasn't figured out is dangerous, but we have to put them on it for a month. Um, so once they're on those two drugs, and by the way, in terms of danger, I, I tell my patients not to take it. We give them a prescription that they they receive, but they don't take the pill, and then they will qualify for, for semaglutide. Oh, is that right? So you have to be on metformin and glyburide for a month. And, and you have you have to have tried being on glyburide for a month at least as uh, as Pharmanet, Pharmanet has to see it, uh, has oh. to be there in, in, the, in their database. And, and those two meds are, are covered, right? Of yes, course, the dangerous one. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I've tried to I've tried to deal with the BC government myself. I've advocated for women's health, for overactive yes. bladder, for many other conditions, and they just don't get it. They work in silos, and you know, unless it affects them potentially, you know, they're not that interested. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a very um, big ship to turn around. So congratulations on on this news. It's fantastic. So we're yes, also Maureen, it makes my life makes my life so much easier as a physician. I bet. I bet. Um, also, we're seeing a rise in obesity in children in, in North America. Uh, so we're seeing a rise in diabetes type 2 in children. Are you seeing that as well? Well, of course, I'm an, I'm an adult diabetes doctor. But yes, I'm seeing younger and younger people referred to me with diabetes. So it's, it's driven primarily by obesity. And, and you know, we, we've got lots of inexpensive, high-calorie foods available to us. You know, you just go into Costco and you see that, that the the highest calorie foods tend to be the cheapest. And of course, we've got more leisure time. We 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 exercise less, and and of course, COVID is making it all worse because it's so hard to exercise. So yes, we've got a a um, you know coalescing of of risk factors that that that, that rise the incidence of of obesity and diabetes. We certainly do, and you know this emotional eating um, is, is something else I think that, you know, happens at the best of times. But when we're in a pandemic and we've been at home for nine months now, um, where, you know, it's, it's difficult not to emotionally eat at times or hit the cabinets much more than you would if you were out being busy. <laughs> like, I can't say that my diet wasn't 100% white things and none of it yeah. was cauliflower today. And that is the truth. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I did well, exercise. I, I mean- Maureen, I'm the same. I mean, I do as I say, not as I do. But I have to tell you, I, I've got to tell you, an, uh, you know, an ozempic anecdote that's, that I've heard from many different of my clients and patients. Once they go on this drug, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person that can't walk past food. I have to eat it, even if I've just had dinner, even if I'm not hungry. If I like the look of it, I, I eat it. So when you're on when you're, when you're on ozempic, you just you just walk past food. So it is. It's very good for those with, you know, with low willpower, ah. and I include myself in that category. So it's it's an amazing drug. It, it suppresses the appetite centrally, so you don't want to eat as much, mm-hmm. and then your stomach doesn't empty um, as well. So you feel full after eating moderate amounts. So those those two effects help weight loss, and then it it helps the body to produce more insulin. And uh, and the insulin that produces works better, as you as you outlined in your introduction, Maureen. You know a lot about diabetes. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, it's so common. I um, I have a question here. Can you spell the name of the drug? The brand name O Z E M P I C O Z E M P I C, and the generic name is semaglutide. S E M A G L U T I D E. Now, is this for family doctors to prescribe, uh, or yes, they they, they okay. can prescribe it. But they, the, the the patients, if you're listening, you have to have you have to have tried metformin and glyburide before the government will cover it. Mm-hmm. There's a special authority form, and if if uh, if you're on metformin and insulin, the government will cover it. So you don't have to do glyburide if you're already on metformin and insulin. Okay, interesting. 
Well, I really appreciate you coming to the program and educating our listeners about this, this game changer. You're absolutely correct. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Please get me on so we can talk about continuous glucose meters as well. Well, let's do it. You know, to be honest with you, I I just didn't get the CGM piece because I am blonde anyway. (laughs) tired, <laughs> blonde and exhausted and overeating. Um, but uh, I have had, we have spoken about that on the program before, but I would love to have you back because people need to hear this over and over again. So I would love to get you back to talk about that. And yes, hopefully yes. somebody from the government is listening to us, Dr. Elliot. Yes. I'm sure I'm sure it'll get back to them, the, the, the naughty things we've said tonight. <laughs> Let's but, hope. But, you know what, it has to be said. I, I want to um, applaud the PharmaCare for covering semaglutide. It's a very, very big deal. It's a big step, and it's going to help more than 100,000 British Columbians. And it's also going to help with the costs on the health care system. That's the other important piece that I think sometimes PharmaCare forgets or the government forgets. Would you agree with that? Yes, it's going to reduce long-term costs. So, yes. You know, their economists know that, and they, they talk to their accountants, and for whatever reason, both economists and accountants agree, and, and here we go. We've, yeah. got this, we've got this new wonderful drug covered. Here we go. Cheers to you and all of them as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Elliott. Th- thanks, Maureen. Good night. You're welcome. Good night. There's never been a better time in life to stay healthy. And I bet you didn't realize that having sex can actually improve your health. There are some very surprising or maybe not so surprising benefits of having sex. And the reason I bring this up is because so many uh, patients, if you will, or clients in my virtual clinical practice these days, because it's all gone virtual, are in sexless marriages. And to be honest with you, about 90% of them are men. Uh, who are have the higher desire, this desire discrepancy. You know, one couple, they had not had sex for a year and three quarters. A year and three quarters. That is a long time. And this particular wife kept trying to hope, magical thinking, that her husband would get back to what she wanted him to be. Uh, he was never going to want he was never going to get back to what she wanted him to be because she actually never really could. The goalposts kept changing all the time. But I try to explain to women in sexless marriages that sex is for you too. Sex is for women as well. It is something to be enjoyed. And not only is it to be enjoyed, but there are health benefits for you. And one of those health benefits is that, and especially in a time of COVID-19, and don't forget, you can still call and win the womanizer because it's going to help your health too. Um, but one sex... Um, is uh, it actually can help to boost your immune system. Sexually active people also take fewer sick days from work. And so people who have sex have higher levels of that which defends you against germs and viruses and other bodily intruders. Uh, and this research was done out of Wilkes University in Pennsylvania, and it was found. It found that college students, and they often do sex, do sex research on college students, which is unfortunate because that's just such a different time of life. But um, college students who had sex once or twice a week had higher levels of a particular antibody compared to students who had sex less often. Of course, there are other things that you should do as well, in addition to having sex to boost your immune system, and that is eat a healthy diet, stay active get enough sleep. And of course, keep up with your vaccinations and hopefully you'll be getting vaccinated when it becomes your turn against the coronavirus. But also having sex can actually boost your libido. It will having sex, make sex better. You become more comfortable and it can actually improve your libido. 
And this is where the womanizer can help. If you don't have somebody in your life or you just want to augment the person that you have in, in your life or the sex that you have with the person in your life, um, you can improve a woman's bladder control because a strong pelvic floor is important to avoid urinary incontinence. And that affects about 30% of women at some point during their lives. And so good sex is a good workout for your pelvic floor muscles. And great sex is a great workout for your pelvic floor muscles. And when you have an orgasm, you have contractions in your muscles, maybe about 21 at a time. And women can have multiple orgasms, of course, and those contractions can actually help to strengthen your pelvic floor. This is another thing that's very important in the coronavirus, in a time of the coronavirus, because people with a high blood pressure, actually, it's considered a comorbidity, and you may actually have a greater burden of disease should you contract the coronavirus. And research suggests that having sex lowers your blood pressure. In particular, it lowers your systolic blood pressure. So that's the top um, that is the top number. So 120 over 80 you might go to 110 over 70 um, if you have sex. And masturbation is not included in this. So it, that that doesn't count necessarily. Um, you know, sex can count though as a little bit of exercise. Um, there are some people who consider it that. But a good sex life is also good for your heart because it is a great way to raise your heart heart rate. And it also keeps your estrogen and testosterone levels in balance, which is also important in the prevention of cardiovascular disease. When um, either one of uh, your sex hormones, estrogen or testosterone is low, you can start to have uh, lots of issues. In particular, you can be at risk of osteoporosis or cardiovascular disease. And you know what? Orgasms are great for pain. So before you reach for some acetaminophen or um, another type of pain reliever, try experiencing an orgasm. And that's what the Womanizer is great for. And uh, I'm giving away a Womanizer. So if you want to win one, you can give us a call, 1-877-399-9898. There is some evidence to support that uh, prostate cancer is less likely in those who are sexually active as well. Um, So... The other thing that's very important and um, in terms of having sex or even just experiencing orgasm or self-stimulation or masturbation, you actually may nod off more quickly after sex and for good reason because prolactin, which is a hormone, is released and that is the hormone that is responsible for feeling relaxed and feeling sleepy. And of course, if you're having sex and you're having great sex... Uh, it might actually reduce the stress in your life. And who's not having stress these days with a pandemic or the worry about, should I go here? Should I go there? What are the rules? What? It, how about my job? What about finances? What about the kids, how, homeschooling, the parents? There's worries galore. But touching and hugging can release your body's natural feel-good hormone. So that's great as well. So there are so many benefits. The most important thing I'd like to say is, ladies, you're missing out big time if you are not having sex or expecting desire to come first. It doesn't. It's responsive. So accept those partners' sexual advances. (laughs) 
this is the segment where you go to bed with me. Hopefully I'm not putting you to sleep too quickly because I still have a prize to give out. It is, I always forget to say, the Womanizer is a $200 value. It's fantastic. Um, and I, if you want to win it, just call me with your relationship problems. <laughs> one 399 or that you're having a great relationship. Tips for somebody else. Tips for another couple who is, is struggling. But I did want to um, read this little message that I received on Instagram recently. And she said, hi, Maureen, I had to write to you to tell you something. Last week, I heard you talking about the womanizer on your Sunday night health show and thought, what the heck, I'm going to buy one. I'm 44 years old and I've never, ever had an orgasm in my entire life. Faked millions, unfortunately. I felt like it was just impossible for me to have one and kind of accepted it. No exaggeration. I had, or as you say, experienced an orgasm within 30 seconds of using the womanizer. I was literally jumping for joy. So I tried it again just to make sure and again, instantly had one. This toy has been life-changing for me. Thank you for talking about these issues. Forever changed Fran. Thank you so much. It's true. You know, I actually prescribe these for women in my clinical practice who have a condition called primary anorgasmia. And that is exactly what this woman describes where she has never experienced an orgasm. And the reason that the womanizer works is because it's a clitoral stimulation device or a clitoral suckling device and about 70% of women require clitoral stimulation in order to experience an orgasm but sometimes this device works better because it knows exactly the right spot you know what I'm saying Um, (laughs) and some people don't actually get the right spot and it can be hard to get the right spot and sustain the right spot and stay there for the right spot. And, you know, anyway, and some people are impatient. It can take a long time. And that's the other issue. It can take take a woman up to 20 minutes to experience an orgasm, even with clitoral stimulation, but not with the womanizer. The womanizer works really fast. Believe you me. Um, Putting a smile on one woman's face, one woman, every Canadian woman, one womanizer at a time. Anyway, so it's, there's still time to enter the contest. One contest, one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. And uh, so I want to also talk to you about uh, fantasy because that is another gift that you could give to the person that you love because, uh, you know, we all have sexual fantasies and this is something that would be good for your relationship this holiday season. People are embarrassed. They, they feel guilty about, uh, having a sexual fantasy, but as it turns out, according to research, we all often have very, very similar sexual fantasies. Um, but you know, it, it is a gift of love is to give your partner the opportunity to share and fulfill some of their sexual fantasies or or yours as well. Let them tell you what they want, what they really, really want. Um, And, you know, there have been, there was a study done of more than 4,000 people that was North Americans. And one of the most uh, integral aspects of that research that um, was most people about four out of five said that their favorite sexual fantasy of all time is something they want to act on. In other words, for most people, their favorite fantasy is desire. Uh, 
But only about half of the participants in this research study said they'd even shared this fantasy with a partner before. And about one in five said they'd actually acted on it. So in other words, there's a huge gap between fantasy and reality. So why don't you make uh, fantasy a reality for your lover, your partner this Christmas? I have Debbie on the line from Manitoba. Hi, Debbie. Hi. How are you? Oh, Mary. <laughs> Mary, did you say? <laughs> No, I'm embarrassed. I'm in my late 60s, and I don't think I've had any sexual fantasies, and I'm still shy about sex. Oh, you haven't had any sexual fantasies? No. <laughs> Why not? You're missing out. <laughs> I don't know. Are you? Do you have a partner? Are you with somebody? Yes, I am. Okay, and, and so you've been with them for a little while, I imagine, and you're in your late 60s, or is it new? been with them for a while. Oh, okay. Um, and you're still shy about it. Oftentimes, uh, people are shy about it because there was a, a shame or a guilt associated with sex, especially when they were growing up. Um, but all that is fake. <laughs> None of that was real. They just lied to you because they didn't want to, you know, because <laughs> oh, okay. they're embarrassed about it themselves. They can't help it themselves. But, you know, we've had improper uh, sexual health education in North America and in many parts of the world as well. Nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to be enjoyed. Oftentimes people hit age 50 and they're like, you know what? I uh, There's more to um, life than not having sex. So oftentimes they embrace it. And so I would suggest that you embrace it, my friend. And we have Susan from White Rock on the line. Hi, Susan. Hi. Uh, yes, I'd like to enter to win that womanizer. Would you? Um, yes, I would love it uh, because I have had an orgasm, a couple of them, but always only in my younger years. And I gained 100 pounds. Um, and I always thought the weight was the problem. And then I lost 50 pounds. And then it's still not happening. So I want one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I know how wonderful it is to have one. And it, it's been a long time. And I really, really want one. That fantastic. <laughs> I really, really want to give it to you. Okay. Now, um, let me just ask you a question, Susan. Uh-huh. Uh, are you kind of between the ages of 40 and are you above the age of yes, 40, I'm, 45? I'm, I'm over 60. Okay. So oftentimes women in the middle years or in the menopause or postmenopausal years have a decrease in estrogen in the urogenital tract and that can impact the female sexual response cycle. So in other words, it may take longer or they may not have an orgasm at all. So mm. I don't know if you have any vaginal dryness or painful sex um, or burning or itching or recurrent urinary tract infections, but you may speak to your doctor about um, localized estrogen, uh, which is inserted vaginally twice a week at night. It's it's low-dose estrogen, and it's very good for your vagina, especially over the age of 65, where, when women can uh-huh. are at great risk of urinary uh, yeah, tract yeah, infections. Yeah, but I was always under the impression weight kind of hinders the orgasm because of the extra space between you, because if you're slim... You know, well, I'm not sure. I mean, that was something I always thought that was the problem. Uh, yeah, I, I, might, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I haven't heard that, to be honest with you. No? Oh, good. No. Okay, so that, that makes me feel better. Yeah, no, more likely to be um, associated with localized estrogen, you know, and plus, well, you know, clitoral true. stimulation. It's a great it's a great device. This womanizer is absolutely fantastic. 
Um, oh, right. It's really the only sex toy that I provide. <laughs> it's okay. this one. Because no, none of the, uh, you know, anyway, it's fantastic. The rest are vibrators, and there's a lot of great vibrators, and you know, a lot of women prefer that. But anyway, well, thank you so much for the call, Susan, oh, okay. and we will definitely put you into the contest. All right. Thank okay. you. Okay. All right. So we were talking about fantasy. So, you know, you heard the woman who called earlier from Winnipeg and, you know, she's still shy about sex, she said. But many of us feel shame and guilt about our fantasies. And this is because there's the, there are these restrict, restrictions on our ideas about what's normal when it comes to sex. And I get so many couples calling uh, or having virtual visits, not only are they sexless marriage, but they're also, it's the same old, same old, the old you again kind of sex. Um, and, you know, oftentimes when people have fantasies, especially if they're in a loving relationship and everything's great, these, couple tells, these couples tell me it's all great, the, the kids and the house, and it's all amazing, but they're not having any sex, and that's incredibly stressful, and, um, you know, it can go on for a long time. Oftentimes women expect the desire to be the same as, as early on. Oftentimes the desire was associated with having children. Um, and so when people have fantasies that make them feel uncomfortable, they will tend to repress those fantasies rather than express them. And it's much healthier to express them because thought suppression is just a terrible way to deal with life in any way. And if you are trying to do thought suppression, you're actually going to, you know, you're going to be try, trying not to think about sex. And it's actually a paradox. It will actually make you think about those sexual fantasies that much more. And so, you know, sexual repression, sexual oppression, you know, women are covertly sexually oppressed in North America. They are overtly sexually oppressed in other parts of the world. But uh, women don't realize that sex is for them and sex is to be enjoyed as well. Instead, oftentimes they view it as a chore. Now, uh, I want to say that uh, women can also be in relationships with men or with other women um, where that man doesn't want to have sex with that woman or uh, or the woman doesn't want to have sex with the woman as well. So it doesn't matter. It does not Low sexual desire doesn't discriminate, but it's all about responsive desire. It's about accepting your um, partner's advances. If all is good in the relationship uh, and, you know, maybe you're just a little bit tired or maybe just not thinking that you don't have desire, but you do accept and you enjoy, you get aroused, you get lubricated, you experience an orgasm. Maybe you need to bring a womanizer in in order to experience that, but nonetheless you do. We call that responsive desire. And that resonates with a lot of women today, especially the women of the chronic busyness syndrome lifestyle. (laughs) That's another lifestyle. Um, So, but you know what? Sharing our fantasies with our partners, you're going to realize that you have a lot more in common perhaps um, and th- those who share their fantasies with their partners report positive experiences when they do so. Uh, and it also can improve your relationship as well. It's a great way to build up that intimacy and that trust. And it's also a little bit of, you know, dirty talk. And that often can spice things up in the bedroom. Because let's face it, things can get dull in the bedroom. You may love them. You may want to stay with them. You may want to be married to them and reap the benefits of whatever it is the marriage provides. But sex is important as well. And that is what I have to get across to clients who present to my virtual clinical practice um, that this will cause tremendous strain in the relationship if the marriage remains sexless and it can lead to chronic masturbation, pornography, infidelity, um, 
isolation, depression, and a shorter life, quite frankly. So there are potential rewards of sharing and acting on those fantasies. So for this Christmas, maybe you'll want to give this particular gift. Okay, we were just a little sex heavy there, but this could be why you're not having sex. You could have GERD. G-E-R-D, gastroesophageal reflux disease. Uh, It's uh, associated with acid indigestion and burping. And so it's not really the sexiest thing that you could have. Um, But uh, so many people have it, uh, just millions of people. It affects the ring of the muscle between your esophagus esophagus and your stomach. And um, so, as I said, you might get heartburn or indigestion, and that's not really pretty. Um, And uh, so you get a backflow or return on on what you've eaten, and your stomach backs up into your esophagus. And you can get burning, and you can think you're having a heart attack, uh, but you're not. With normal digestion, your um, esophagus opens to allow food into your stomach. So... um, The risk factors, we have 6 million Canadians have heartburn at least once a month and more than 1.5 million adults have heartburn every single day. This also affects uh, pregnant women as well. Um, There are a number of um, reasons you might have it. So coughing, vomiting, straining, or sudden physical exertion can raise the pressure in your belly and that can cause you to get a hiatal hernia. And so that's another risk factor. Um, for this. And a lot of very healthy people may have a hiatal hernia um, and that can lead to GERD as well. So there are some diet and lifestyle changes that you might want to go with. And these aren't easy, um, quite frankly, because it's, as you say, some of us are people that can't walk by food. Um, No, I can actually. But sometimes I do like to crave certain things. Anyhow, the fast things are easy and when you're busy. Um, But some of the uh, changes that you might want to make are avoid those foods and beverages that are triggers. And so things like chocolate and peppermint, fatty foods, coffee and alcoholic beverages. And so anything that can irritate a damaged esophageal lining, uh, like citrus fruits and juices and tomato products and and pepper. You also want to eat smaller servings um, at your mealtimes, and that may also help to control symptoms. And eating meals at least two to three hours before bedtime lets the acid in your stomach go down and your stomach will partially empty as well. Eat slowly, take your time, enjoy your food, chew your food thoroughly, stop smoking. That's also a contributing factor as well. Elevate your head when you're sleeping. It's also important to maintain a healthy weight because being overweight can often worsen your symptoms. And wearing loose clothing, uh, the clothes that squeeze your waistline, if you're trying to squeeze into them, can put pressure on your belly in the lower part of your esophagus. And also acupuncture. Acupuncture may help with this as well. Um, But there are medications, the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors that um, may help people as well. So uh, this is something as we look ahead to the big Christmas dinners that you're having with no one (laughs) this year, that you're having with maybe one other person if you're lucky or your family, whatever, just the people who live in your household. um, You may want to, you know, not have so much turkey, not have so much stuffing, you know, eat slowly, chew it well, uh, take your time. And, uh, you know, it's all about your health. Your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you 
you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.